Jason, you also wanted to jump in. Well, firstly, I just want to thank Magnus for the little masterclass on how to pitch your business five times in half an hour. Um, but so, 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 so everyone's saying you shouldn't go for an equity partner and you're sitting here. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. How's it, hustlers? So last night we hosted the third installment of the Secrets of Scale event series powered by Entrepreneur Magazine and The Mesh Club. On the show, we looked at the practical steps involved in scaling a business, and this is really where the rubber hits the road for you, and you'll learn from those who have built businesses that run into the hundreds of millions. Tonight's panelists are Vinnie Lingham, the CEO of Civic and Shark Tank Investor, Manus Bertrake, the CEO of Transaction Capital SME Services and Shark Tank Investor, Jason Goldberg, the founder of 10XE and director of Edge Growth, and Vuyo Tofile, the CEO of Entrepreneur Bank. Today's show will consist of three parts. The first part is building the airplane, and this segment will be the majority of our focus because it will cover the practical how-to steps for scaling your business. We'll be revealing how to design a scale-ready business and walk you through some of the common pitfalls that all entrepreneurs will encounter as they build the airplane and how to avoid them. We'll also reverse engineer how to design a scale-ready business from a 150-strong team all the way down to a five-person team. The second part of the show is all around how do you build your business so that it's built for winter. And this segment is all around how to ensure that you remain profitable as your business scales. We'll unpack how to bring different revenue streams, partnerships, and products and services together to help you weather economic downturns. The final part of the show is really a scale blueprint. And in this segment, we'll explore the systems that can help you scale, how to automate repetitive processes and outsource non-essential tasks, and how to design a business that makes more money while you sleep than when you're awake. Don't forget, guys, we have a fourth event coming up on Monday. That's the 11th of June with Tom Asaka, the international best-selling author of The Business of Belief. We have Howard Saxton, the CEO of Saycom Group, and Eric Kruger, the high-performance coach and the founder of Better Man. And we'll be talking all around the personal aspects of scale. This is all around you as the entrepreneur and the psychology of scale. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. So welcome, guys, to this show. And uh, in this show, we're going to cover three things. The first one is all around building the airplane, right? So this is um, we've, we've, we've spoken a lot about fundamentals and strategy and all this kind of stuff. And this show is really around applying the actual practical steps, the how-to stuff that you guys can apply in your businesses right now. Okay. Um, so we're going to look at how do you design a scale-ready business? So Vinny's done built two of these things, doing some amazing stuff. Um, Manus, of course, uh, very well known in the entrepreneurship circles and now a best-selling author. Congrats. Uh, 90 Rules for Entrepreneurs, which you'll be signing at the end of tonight. Um, and so we're also going to be looking at some of the common pitfalls that um, any entrepreneur is going to face as they scale. And we're going to run through some scenarios from different business sizes. So whether you're a one to five man business or 150 man business, um, and what does that all look like? We're going to look at being built for winter. What does a scale business look like when we enter market depressions, for instance? How do you make hiring and firing decisions? What do you do as, an, as a business owner in that context? And then we, finally, we're going to look at the scale blueprint. And this is really around systems and automation and how can you effectively exit the business so that the business runs on its own. Um, so that's basically the three things. Vinny is with us for 60 minutes. So what I'm going to do, we're going to go through as much as we can, but then I'm going to have a dedicated question and answer session uh, with Vinny before he drops off. So that'll be at about quarter to 10 his time or quarter to seven our time. 
Okay, cool. So with that being said, let's get some guests on. Some so guests I'd on. like to welcome uh, Vinny Lingham to the show. Put your hands together. Special song for you, Vinny. Okay, cool. And then uh, Manus Bertrag, CEO of Transaction Capital SME Services. Then next up, we have Jason Goldberg. <laughs> Last but not least, we have Vuya Tofile, the CEO of Entrepreneur Bank. If anyone wants a couch, it's now freely available because all of the boys have stood up and actually come up here. So it's perfectly comfortable and it is safe right up front. Don't worry, you won't pick on you very much. <laughs> Alrighty, cool. So let's get on with the first segment, right? Um, building the airplane. So uh, I'd like to, um, does everybody know who everybody is here on the panel? First of all, hands up. How many say yes? Okay. Let's do this. Mine is just the headline. Who are you and what makes you awesome in the context of scale? <laughs> Uh, so I'm Manus Bredek. I just released a book called 90 Rules for Entrepreneurs. I was a shark on Shark Tank South Africa, and I'm the CEO of Transaction Capital, uh, Transaction Capital, SME Services. Uh, Transaction Capital is a listed company, and they recently acquired uh, my company, so I'm running a division. Fantastic. Jason, what's your headline there, dude? Uh, Jason Goldberg, co-founder of Edge Growth, the Vermela Fund, and now the 10X entrepreneur, that stuff at the back. And we, we're obsessed with helping guys like you scale your business. So that's what we do. Okay, cool. Vuyo? Vuyo Tofile here, CEO of Endbank. Uh, we've got a platform called MySME Tools, and we've scaled it to nine countries currently in Africa. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. Cool. Amazing stuff. And last but not least, Vinny Lingham, what's your headline, mate? Hey guys, so um, I did uh, Shark Tank with Manus. Before that, I did Dragon's Den as well uh, in South Africa. I've got uh, a number of businesses that I've done over the years. Uh, recently, Gift, uh, which I sold to First Data. It's a uh, gift card um, processing platform. Uh, and uh, now I'm doing Civic, which is an um, identity verification platform using blockchain technologies. And uh, yeah, I mean, happy to waffle on for ages, but let's get down to it. <laughs> cool. I'd like to stick with you, Vinny. So, um, so between you and Manus, uh, obviously, if you got how many of you have watched the sh the series of Shark Tank? Okay, cool. So you all know. So see, look how famous you guys are already. Yeah. Um, so look. Um, so I want to basically talk around um, building the airplane. So, and I'd like to tackle it from Vinny. You, if you could oblige us first, um, when you. Uh, on the Shark Tank series, um, how do you approach, um, you know, it backing a jockey or a business that's scale ready? 
Um, and I don't want you to answer it like as a VC. I want you to um, share some personal anecdotes around gifts specifically, <coughs> because that was the first really big business comparatively. I mean, you exited that for $50 million. Um, so what, what did you learn through that process? And what anecdotes can you share from either the Shark Tank or observations just to get the ball rolling? Yeah, I think the one thing I always tell people is when it comes to businesses that you know the, the trend is your friend. So like, I always look for entrepreneurs building on a on a trend line. You know, if you come to me and tell me that you're going to be doing um, you know printer cartridges, it's not that interesting because that's not a very, very big trend right now. Um, may have been you know 20 years ago, but uh, selling that doesn't doesn't make sense. Uh, so I always look at like what's hot, what's new. Uh, when we did gift, it was definitely you know mobile payments, uh, mobile gift cards, mobile banking. That was a, a strong trend. And so I look for secular trends that uh, I can exploit in the market. Uh, and often you want to spot these trends before everyone else does. But, you know, for, for startup companies going into established markets, unless, you've, unless you're doing something very disruptive, uh, it doesn't make sense. Uh, with Civic, we did, um, we did do that. We actually went, we, 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 well, kind of. So we went into the identity space. But digital identity is very different from, from regular identity. So, if you think about uh, your driver's licenses and passports, that's a very big, well-established space. But now we're disrupting it by creating digital equivalency. So I think it's more about following what the future trends are going to be uh, when you're building a business and, and trying to sort of you know, latch onto that stream of consciousness and thought around um, the evolution of, of a market, uh, as opposed to trying to, you know, just competing, doing what everyone else is doing. Gotcha. I mean, do, does this point of market cycles and being aware of whether you're in an upturn market cycle, whether one that's potentially flat or in the case of crypto at the moment, it's a bear market. Um, Minus, what is your view on that? Does that change? I mean, if you cast your mind back to when you were a five-person business uh, versus, say, the business that you are now, which is how many people employed? Yeah, I, I, within our current business, we've got about 40 um, but in the bigger group, we've obviously got more. So do market cycles um, have less or more of an impact in your view when you're a small business or whether you're a big business like, let's just say, 150 staff? Is it the same relevance, in other words? Yeah, so Vinny is in the tech and it's fast growing and it's, it's, it's the place to be. Uh, but there are thousands of entrepreneurs starting a, a small business and that's the market that I represent is the guy who just don't want to earn an income and is maybe going to sell his business and have a good life for the rest of his life, but he's not going to be a billionaire and buy a yacht and um, open up a bank account in Switzerland. But uh, just do a business and I think uh, those businesses you can – pretty much start in any environment and some of them are going to be harder to, to grow bigger. Um, but, but yeah, depends what it is. Um, obviously when you go for something new like tech, you need to be in the right thing. But I think the majority of businesses you can start in an up and down time and it's going to depend on the entrepreneur. Jason, Jason, you do a lot of strategic consulting. There's massive banners. Thank God I brought my own branding because otherwise you would have taken over. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, uh, 10X specializes literally in scaling businesses. I mean, what do you see out there when it comes to market cycles? And, um, you know, from a scenario planning perspective, whether you're a big, bigger business or a smaller business, is it still relevant? What have you observed? So, you know, whether the wind's blowing at zero or at 100 k's an hour, it doesn't really affect a rocket ship. Um, so a rocket ship is a rocket ship and uh, a really scalable company, it's the right thing at the right time, driven by a great team, up or down market, not going to make a really big difference. Uh, when you get to 500, 1,000, 5,000 employees, you're starting to be a really scaled entity. Market cycles, yeah, they'll come into play. But if you, you know, the, the trend is your friend, normally you're just growing a little bit less fast. 
Um, so, so a really great scale-up is, is not going to be affected by market until the market matures, and really you're affected by cycles in the same way you know, normal markets are. So if we had just some context, um, when you, I mean, how many businesses do you currently have on your books? Okay, so we've got uh, 46,000 SMEs on our books, um, and it's quite interesting. I mean, for, for us, when I built this business, it was about fulfilling a need, right? So I was a business ent- oh, entrepreneur, still am, and for me, yes, cycles are important, but are you building a business of value? Bottom line, that's what you found. If 10 people need my product, then probably another 100, and then another 1,000, et cetera. But am I fulfilling that core, core need that is going to remain standard? Whether there's an up market or down, uh, downward um, uh, cycle, there has to be consistency. And am I fulfilling that particular need that can cut across any business at any time? So for us, I think that has what, uh, that's what has enabled us to, to, to scale our business and also partnerships, you know, being able to find um, partners within certain markets, etc. But at the end of the day, are you building a business of value? I would say that bottom line. So in good times, bad times, if your business is valuable, somebody's going to pay you for it or pay for your service or goods. Uh, Matt, can we just get the roaming mic on and start just ready to take some questions? Um, so, I mean, what does a scale-ready business look like? I mean, if, this is the practical stuff, right? So this is now, let's just get some basic points landed here, right? So you have a business, you have customers, you have staff. At that point, scale is a, is a relevant discussion for you. If you're in survival mode, probably not so relevant, right? Although it's still good to be exposed to this kind of stuff. Um, so let's start with the small business. I mean, you've got 46,000 small businesses on your books. Um, I mean, what does a scale-ready business look like for you? Where, where, at what point do you push the go button? Yeah, good question. So for us, there's a couple of things. Um, do you have a existing brand? So I'll tell you, from I, I consider our business now, it's in its third iteration, right? We're still a startup. We've been around for about eight, nine years now. Initially, when we started, it was a platform that was licensed out. It was white-labeled, right? So the National Empowerment Fund, you wanted funding there, you'd go on nefplanner.co.za, that was us in the background, right? A couple of years later, we started to create our own brand because we realized we actually don't have any control. Nobody knows of us, you know, so how are we going to scale that business? You don't have a critical brand that people can buy into. Then secondly... Do you have proprietary technology, something special, something innovative that, or, or unique to your business where you can build a barrier? You know, there's a barrier to entries or, or a moat around your business. The other one was how can this product also be useful to another entrepreneur? So if it's useful to me, it's useful to you. You're going to tell the next person. So is there a viral effect or network effect in terms of that business? And then fourthly, we looked at elements around, is the business valuable, right? I I go back to, is it valuable? So you can have all those three things, but if nobody derives any value from your product continuously, you're not going to scale. Uh, Vinny, if I could come to you, let's go back to gift because I want to explore that story. So uh, when you were five, five men strong or five, yeah, five people under your wing. How did you approach scaling? I mean, when you knew you had product market fits and you wanted to push the go button, like what were the steps that you walked through personally? Yeah. So, so with regards to scaling, I think the, the one thing I will say is um, we, we focused not on scale initially. We eventually got to like, you know, huge amounts of scale 
Um, after we sold the business, we went over $100 million in, in sales that year. And so um, the, what we focused on was, was customer engagement. You know, if you build a great product that people want to use and they want to buy, they'll keep coming back. And But if you have lots of customers walking in the door and they walk out without making a purchase, it's a problem. So from day one, the key thing we focused on was uh, driving high levels of user engagement. Okay. Was that it? Was there anything else part of, part of that story? It was just user engagement. Let's wrap that up. No, it's, no, no, literally, it, it's, it's, if you build it, look, it's different in the online world. If you're building a business online and uh, you want to have people, you, you want to scale it, it's pointless trying to send like a million users to the website. It makes no sense at all, right? Um, if they don't, if the conversion rates aren't high enough and they're not able to make purchases and transact, you're just losing. It's just, it's just like foot traffic walking out of your store. So in the beginning, we focused on, how many, uh, you know, what's the conversion rate of, of clicks to customers basically for the for the app and for the site? And what percent of those are return customers and how many of those people keep buying more and more and more, et cetera. And so we focus on all the little things. That, like whenever it was a customer service. So, I mean, one of the things we did really well was customer service. And everyone says that, but no one really like thinks about it. We, we, we try to make sure we, we answer as few tickets as possible by building all the tools so people could do it all themselves. So we, we took the kind of the Amazon model where everything was just very much self-service the whole time. And then and then when we, we eventually scaled the business, we didn't have to hire more customer service people. It just scaled beautifully. So what Amazon's famous for is that they've been very much um, in the pursuits of vision and growth and not profits. That's disrupted the whole value economy in many instances. And it's a model that a lot of other big brands are trying to adopt. Um, how, what would you say about you know pursuing vision and growth up front and remaining less profitable up front in the pursuits of getting more users, getting more conversions or more traffic? It, it depends, right? If you're a bootstrap company, it's just really hard to do to do that because you need to pay the bills. If you've got venture capital financing, there's other things you can do uh, to to get there. So it, it depends. A lot of these questions depend on like context uh, as a company. Where what stage are you in? Have you raised money? Have you not raised money? Uh, bootstrap companies tend to have to just drive revenue early on to keep things going, keep the lights on. And venture capital finance companies or even angel investment uh, investment companies, they can focus a little bit more on keeping a, a – I mean, what I, what I recommend is on, on an angel sort of seed financing type company, keep a small team, four or five people, and have enough salaries there for you know, a year and a half or so. And you just focus on not scaling in terms of getting more customers in, but building the best product and making sure that you can service those customers at very low incremental cost. Cool. Vivian, you want to jump in? Yeah, I want to add to that. I, I know we're talking about scaling, but a lot of people actually don't focus on the product, getting a great product out there. You know, um, we come to these engagements, we talk about scale, and everybody wants a billion-run business, billion-dollar business, the Facebook. But even Mark Zuckerberg didn't start off trying to cater for a billion people. Right? So... The key thing most of us lose out or lose sight of is create a business for your first hundred or thousand people. Make sure that those people are catered for very, very well, extremely well. Focus on those people. Scale will come as a natural progress of that. A lot of us are trying to build these big behemoths, but if you're not focusing on your first customers, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to find those 500 million customers all over the world. I mean, when we built our business, I wasn't looking at other markets. All I looked at was South Africa. That's all. I was trying to focus and deal with a particular issue around South Africa and entrepreneurs who needed a business administration platform to help the business. Simple. How we scaled as a consequence of other things that we'll talk about. 
Yeah, Manus, um just going to you, I mean, how did you, what was your kind of approach or strategy around, you know, scale? Was it focusing on getting everything perfect for those 100 or was it potentially a different strategy? Yeah, for, uh, for us and my last business that I sold now was, and we essentially grew it in two years from me going full-time into the business to selling. And uh, for us, it was, I said, I don't want to be the biggest company. I don't want to brag about revenue, but we want to be the most profitable company. So from the very beginning, we looked at pricing and product um, and the customers and said, if we can sign up 10 customers and we can be insanely profitable, then we can sign up a 1,000 customers and we can be really pr- profitable. Because I think one of the problems with uh, many businesses is the model is, is flawed. The biz- product is great. Um, you get all the users and then you sit two years down the line and you say, PC funding is up. How do we monetize this? So I suppose it's this whole concept around having a 1,000 true fans. Right. For sure. Yeah. For sure. But you must also be able to add that 1,001 fan at a reasonable cost. It doesn't help if, if that 1,001 fan is also coming at a huge cost. You need to have that foundation solid so that you can just add numbers to it. Yeah. And I suppose that's a big thing that a lot of entrepreneurs don't get right, right? Which is, well, it's all great to scale. We might have product market fit. We might be civic, right? Which is scaled <laughs> massively. Um, but um, um, and we, and we, we're still subscale as far as we're concerned. Really? We're, we're very much subscale. What, can you contextualize that or quantify that for us a bit? How much have you raised to date and how much do you plan on raising? At what point do you then qualify your business as being a scale business? So we raised like $40 million in total, uh, roughly. Um, and we're still subscale in the sense that when we look at user traction and numbers, we don't have anywhere close to uh, a, a minimum number of users that we think gives us a level of scale, which is um, uh, enough for us to go turn on marketing. So you won't see any civic marketing anywhere. We, we just we don't think we're at a subscale. When you start seeing us marketing the product, then you know we've hit a level of scale which allows us to really accelerate growth. Um, and that's for me that's the sort of the, the key indicator. When when you can sort of you know throw fuel on the fire and get an accelerant uh, return on investment because you can scale and grow your product very quickly. That's the, that's when you're really at scale. Marketing is something. Marketing is a, a activity which is not, which is really reserved for for you know. Businesses at scale, or, or or trying to scale up, it's not for subscale businesses. I think uh, entrepreneurs make the mistake of trying to be successful too quickly, you know, and then they want to basically build the the, the product's not ready, people are unhappy, the processes aren't very well, the support, you know, people want lots of handholding and customer support, it's not intuitive, and so they're in such a hurry that they want to keep hiring people and building the teams bigger, etc. But they don't have a scalable, repeatable. Uh, sustaining business model or product offering that actually makes sense. Okay. Well, I mean, when does marketing come into play in your world? Just as Vinny said, I mean, you, when the market is coming to you, actually, it's ironic. When the market is coming to you, you're ready for marketing. So, so when you're, you've nailed your product and then you scale a little bit and you know that the way you do things today, you can do it more or less the same way when you're a thousand times the, set, the size, um, that's when you've got a repeatable business model that's scalable. And um, unfortunately, what that does not look like is we have to hire incredibly smart, rare unicorns to come and do the job um, to get because the job is so hard to do. That's how we scale. That That's a, the opposite end of the spectrum of a scalable business. So what you want is that mediocre people can do an extraordinary job. 
through the way you've set up the business. And that's then a scalable business. Um, and, and once you've proven that over and over and over uh, with your first 100 customers, or maybe it's five if you're B2B, um, you know, th- then you're ready to pour fuel on the fire, uh, put money into marketing. But you know, by then, the marketing is coming to you, and you're just accelerating. So I suppose basically what you're saying is be Tesla, right? So Tesla, interesting, doesn't, doesn't advertise at all. And there's an interesting, interesting stats. Over the last six years, they've had a greater share of voice than any of the major car manufacturers in the U.S. who spend like billions a year on Super Bowl ads and various other things simply because of the brand, one. And two, it's about the content that they produce. Do you know what I mean? And especially with technology-enabled products, like content's a very important thing because it need, you have to educate your market around Civic. You know, how do you de- distributed ledgers work? How does the token strategy work and all that kind of stuff? I mean, Vinny, how have you used content content. sales slash advertising in your marketing? We, we don't. I mean, right now we don't do any marketing. We, we, we launched a beer machine where you could get a beer um, and we do like cool PR stuff, but we don't actually do, we don't pay for marketing. We don't pay for advertising. We don't do any of that stuff. We, I mean, and the product's kind of going viral as everyone knows about it and starts using it. But, you know, for us, the other issues we have to deal with, we have to deal with, like, lack of touch points, for example. Uh, how many, you know, how many beer machines can users have? How many uh, websites can you uh, have subject adopted, et cetera? So for us, it's all about um, activations and, um, and uh, customer engagement and user engagement and sort of smoothing that process out uh, before we even look past that. Cool. So let's go back to the white paper. So you wrote the white paper for Civic, and then you didn't do any marketing, any advertising. So how did you raise thirty-three million dollars? Uh, it was a it was a very interesting uh, uh, story. <laughs> we had over hundred million dollars in demand for the for the product uh, for what we were selling. So we we capped it at thirty-three million. So what really happened was um, people read the white paper. We, the timing was good. We we, we didn't discount the tokens to anybody. We gave, it was a very fair, like we pioneered running a fair ICO uh, a year ago. No one, no one had done one of those before. It was all like held by a few insiders and everyone got discounts. And it was, it was it's kind of a, a, a you know, boys club type of scenario. And um, we just did ours differently. And so everybody wanted to get in and, you know, the price never dropped below the opening price. It's still trading three X up in four months in, in USC terms. Um, and so we built them out because people understand what we're trying to do. And, and, and I think we set expectations that it's a long-term project and business we're working on. And it's worked well for us. So in crypto circles, you regarded as the Bitcoin Oracle because <laughs> um, you somehow get the price speculation thing right to a lot, less or a larger extent. I mean, how important was your personal brand uh, in the context of at least getting to where you got Civic 2. And what advice would you want to share with our um, our room tonight about personal branding in the context of scale? Yeah, I think uh, I think the, the personal brand stuff was definitely helpful. The, the big article thing was like, I mean, for, the, for up until 2017, I think I was pretty, um, pretty accurate with my calls. Um, I think 2017 was a bit of a crazy year. I don't think anyone would have predicted 20,000 in a year. But at twenty thousand, I was saying, guys, this is a bit ridiculous, you know. So, like, at some point, we have to the, the bar has to break, and uh, and I did I did actually predict there'd be a bubble uh, <laughs> at the end of the year. But anyway, that's just kind of a humorous. Uh, just because I've been in Bitcoin for a long time, so I think it's it's not it's more functional. Like there weren't that many people in it, so anyone can become an article back then. Uh, now it's got you know twenty thirty million people. Uh, it's hard to compete, but um, you know, I, I think personal branding is is kind of overstated in the short term and understated in the long term. So it's important that you have a long-term career building your brand. 
But I think at any point in time, you're relying on your brand to do something in the short term, especially early on in your career, it's not going to make much of a difference. Okay, like, cool. Even now, like even with my with my so-called brand, um, yeah, I'm able to get lots of uh, people to sort of get excited about what I'm doing and, and buy tokens or whatever else. But it doesn't really speed up the, the rest of the business process. You still have to go through the, the process of doing everything else you know, the way you would normally. So like closing deals are maybe you get in the door faster, but then getting getting the deal signed and done is still like three months and lawyers and more. Like brand doesn't help it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Cool. Um, I want to talk around uh, product services. So one of the things when I had uh, a chat to Manus and Eric Krugers on our show next week um, was you can't scale a crap service, basically. Um, and so I want to go there for a second just to give some more context. Uh, Manus, uh, what did you mean by that? I mean, I mean, let's just say, take Vinny's example where he wanted more users on his site, for instance. And okay, you can do iterative sort of development and improve the interface to make that experience better. But in many instances, a lot of the people in the biz, in the room here potentially won't have tech businesses, right? Um, so what, what advice do you have for, for entrepreneurs around scale when they're not quite sure whether their product or service is actually scale ready? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think it's always about you've got a crap service. You might have an amazing service, but you just can't scale it because uh, your business is just not scalable. You're a hairstylist and you like to do everything yourself. And then regardless of how great your marketing is, the property that you set up, you're just not going to scale that business. You're going to depend on people doing it for you. So you need to change the business model and maybe become a franchise but you're not going to scale that product. So it's very important when you talk about scale to look at the business or product. Never mind this crap service. That will never scale. But just the, the, the product in general. And I think many times we get so we get so bogged up with the IT world because IT is great and tech is great. You build an app once and you can get a million users on it, but you can't get a service out once and get a million users on it. So you need to see it in context. Um, what, how do you qualify scale-ready products or services in your world, Jason? So, you know, the, to be honest, the, the product or service is, um, is less the issue than the business model by which you deliver it. Um, so, so you've got to get a whole bunch of things lined up so that it's, it's easy to deliver value to the client and extraordinary value, actually. I mean, if, if your product is, is crap, if you scale crap, you just get a big pile of crap. But um, if your product is good and you decide to scale that, then you're choosing to walk on glass because scaling good makes your life extraordinarily difficult. You actually, you need to be scaling great. 
And then scaling great means you've got an operation to repeatedly deliver great, even at scale, and it's hard to keep on top of everything at scale. And that means you're relying on processes and systems to deliver great repeatedly. And so, you know, entrepreneurs who tend to build highly scalable business tend to do it because they're intending to from the beginning. Um, the, from the outset, they are removing themselves from things like sales and, and so on. So they can spend time engineering a business, uh, working on scalability of processes and systems and, and they're hiring different kinds of people. Um, you know, they're hiring the kinds of people that could do things at five and then 10 and then a hundred times our current scale. And I mean, I'm over, oversimplifying. Um, but the point is that scaling is about a whole bunch more than, uh, the product and service. And if you want to rule for product or service, just think extraordinary value. It's got to be a lot better than the other alternatives that are out there. Unless we're talking about a new wave and you just first and you just do really good, but very first. Um, but for most of us, we're not doing something that we're first at. And then it needs to be really extraordinary. Uh, Vinny, if I can come to you, because I think this point around designing with the end in mind is really important. Something we haven't actually discussed before. Um, Vinny, how, I mean, how have you designed Civic with the end in mind straight off the bat? Yeah. I actually wrote, I wrote a blog post about that about a year ago, but that's two years ago. Yeah. So um, I read that last night. That's why I just said that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Lose hey, me um, yeah, I take a long-term view on things. I'm like, okay, well, what can we do in seven or ten years? Like, it's kind of like um, if you want to achieve something great in your life, you've got to you've got to have a, a higher purpose or calling. And so you can start off in baby steps and figure out how do we get there. I think it's actually, I mean, I think it's a it's a, it's a very good process to go through. Um, primarily because if you're going through that process, you're thinking about things the right way, um, and you you don't like like I said, a lot of entrepreneurs are just too impatient. They want to run before they can walk. And, uh, and, and they're still not even crawling yet. And so you've got to take it, you, you, you've got to understand what are the, what are the key things you need to do to build up towards a longer term vision. And then if you have that longer term vision, you're a bit more patient. And so when you're patient, you wind up, uh, I think being more considered and thoughtful about how you piece together your business and how you spend your capital and how you, and I've made these mistakes in the past. I've been too impatient with things. And sometimes it just needs time to, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't make things happen faster by throwing more money at. You just got to like, you know, product like hiring. Often hiring more engineers and building bigger teams aren't going to make things go faster. In fact, it probably uh, slows it down. It's the the old mythical man month um, uh, they call it. So, you know, having more cooks in the kitchen is is not going to speed things up. And so, I've just gotten I've gotten used to that. I've gotten used to the idea of being a little bit more patient about things. Okay, so that thirty odd million dollars that you've raised, how are you going to spend that? I mean, are you prepared to share that kind of information, just broad brushstrokes, so we can get a sense? Yeah, as to- m- honestly, most of it's salaries. I mean, like when you're raising capital in the tech world, you know, eighty percent salaries, twenty percent operating costs. It's as simple as that. Your salary, Vinny. <laughs> what is your salary? I, I, I'm, pr- I'm proud to say that I, I'm earning less now than I did in my. Uh, Previous to like since, in fact, I think I only less now than I did like ten years ago in my in my pre company. So, uh, yeah, I, I make sure that I keep my salary under check in check. So now that you've designed Civic with the end in mind, what's your end salary going to be? <laughs> Actually, here's an, interesting, here's an interesting story. When we started Civic, I I was uh, I took a thousand dollars a year more than my assistant um, because I mean in the US you have to take a salary uh, otherwise your shares get taxed at, uh, as income tax. So you have to take a salary. You can't add nothing because otherwise the IRS deems your shares to be income. 
So it was like literally $1,000 above my assistant salary, which wasn't a lot. <laughs> How much do you earn, Manus? <laughs> Um, no, I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> no, I'll tell you. Um, no, I, I, I also take a relatively low salary, but I don't know what is relative anyway. Um, <laughs> but my, my income is coming from just growth and dividends, and um, I, yeah, I definitely take more than what I can spend. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> so either I spend too little or I take too much. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so, okay, so let's go to, <laughs> where do we go from here? I was really interested in that. <laughs> so I want to take questions from the audience. Uh, Vinny's going to drop off in the next 10 minutes. Um, who's got a question for either our pan panel or, or Vinny? Just hands up. Okay, there you go, this gentleman here. Vinny's passed the mic down. Teamwork, teamwork. Okay, just your name and then the question. Hi, good evening. It's uh, Suresh and Woodley. Um, evening to the panelists and to the master of ceremonies. <laughs> uh, but a question to you as a, as a young tech startup, what would be the path? I know every path would be different, but uh, especially with an app integrating to data with big data, what, what can you advise? You know, if you're looking for funding at a later stage, but obviously just sort of a, a broad understanding of the path to take to get to where you want to go to. Uh, you know, do you look for VC? Do you look to to bootstrap it? As you said, you know you've got a solid idea and, and what you're going to do with it and how you're going to do it. But do you take the pain now and raise the funding and get started? Or do you get someone on board that's just going to fund you and, and give it away now? You know? Sorry, I don't know. Hold on, Vinny. Have you muted yourself again? Sorry, if, if you say, sorry, hi. If you say later stage, can you define, like, what, what do you mean by later stage? I always, I like to get that clear. So, um, bootstrapping it internally, borrowing from friends, banks, family, whatever, get started like that. Or from the get go, go to a VC um, and say to them, guys, we've got a good idea. Do you want to get on board and we'll give you whatever it is? And you go from there. Do you try and do it on your own or do you just take the inverted commas, easier way out and it depends on your context. I mean, is it a revenue business from day one or is it a product development cycle? If it's a product development cycle, uh, it's very hard to go and, and, and you know, pay for salaries and get people on board uh, early on without capital. It's like you, you can't bootstrap something you can't sell. I mean, the, one of the best uh, – in fact, a good example is uh, Sweep South. Jason and I both invested in. I mean, their early, their early investment was like less than a half million rand, I think, we put in in their seed round. And that was because it was a business that didn't need a lot of capital to start generating returns. They built a lot of the technology already. We could start seeing revenues come in. And then as they scaled the business, we plowed more and more capital in because there were some metrics to go on. If their business was something where, you know, you'd spend five million rand before you see the first dollar, then or first round of, of income, it's a very different approach. And you can't you can't bootstrap it. You can't take seed money for that. You need to get much bigger capital. And so it, it, it's very contextual. All right, yep. I got you. Thanks. Uh, Monis, do you want to take a stab at that? Any other questions? Maybe this side of the room? Yeah, that gentleman there at the back, Anish from Jarav. How's it, Brie? How are you? <laughs> so can, can I can maybe go in? Um, on Wednesday night, um, I was doing a startup grind event here, and I always do it at these events where I say uh, any VAT-registered businesses in the house, people put up your hands. 
And then, um, so that's at least a revenue of a million. And then I go and ask, or I ask them if they got any funding. And on Wednesday night, everyone who raised their hands again said no funding, because we always think that we need to get funding to get started. But if you speak to any business owner, or 99% of business owner, they never start with funding. They start somewhere, change the, change the business a little bit, raise money a little bit, uh, change the direction, get customers, and before you know it, you've got a, you've got a great business. But like Vinny said, obviously context is important because if you're starting out, no customers, tech business, uh, then you need to raise cash. But I think we focus on it way too much, um, in the entrepreneur world. Uh, Anish, go ahead. Hey, Vinny, how are you doing? Um, this is less of a question about scaling and more of a question about the startup ecosystem or environment in South Africa. So my question is, why did you set up Civic in San Francisco and what would have needed to have been different in South Africa for you to have set up Civic in South Africa? So uh, I, get, I get that question a lot. I mean, I think it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to, to... I mean, three years ago, we started Civic. Trying to explain to people in America what blockchain was was, was very difficult. I mean, I mean, literally VCs and Sandel Road didn't understand it. Um, even up until, let's say, a year and a half ago, a year ago, it was just, it was excruciating trying to explain to them. And these guys at the cutting edge of technology, can you imagine trying to explain it to people in South Africa? Um, you know, people kind of thought I was, I was, uh, nuts in America. And, uh, and <laughs> so <laughs> I was probably righteously insane in South Africa. Um, yeah, even just Bitcoin, you know, I've been talking about Bitcoin for four or five years now. And I've did talks in, in Cape Town, South Africa. I've had so much grief from people who told me that it's like drug money and it's for all sorts of bad, nefarious activities. And now the whole world's using it. So, um, <laughs> you know, the mindset would need to change in South Africa. Um, I think, uh, you know, doing a really advanced tech in South Africa is very difficult because the mindset's very, um, uh, it's just not there yet. I think uh, it's very much a revenue-driven culture. So if I say, hey, I need $40 million to go build the tech product, who in South Africa is going to go and fund that? Let's be honest. Um, you know, even if I'm running the company, it, like, it just, it's not going to happen. So, uh, and, and by the way, like we always expected that we would need that sort of level of capital to build the business and maybe even more, right? So you, you can't raise that sort of money in South Africa. It's just not, the market's not big enough. The, and, the, and the knowledge around what the space, what advanced tech is like, is just not there. Okay, any other questions at the back of the room there? Dan. Hey, my name is Tyler. Uh, I just I had a simple question. I might be asking you to repeat yourself, Vinny, but I just wanted to understand what are some of the signs a business can uh, can look for uh, to indicate that they're ready for scale. So um, I think the, the the biggest the biggest sign would be um, high customer retention and and good strong lifetime value of a customer. So that means that every customer you get in the door, let's say you sell them one one thing every three months or six months and you know that you're making, you know, whatever, a couple of thousand rand a year profit and you know that you can, and every new customer comes to the door, doesn't really increase your support costs or your operational costs. Obviously there's, you know, it's basically economics, right? If every single sale is a, is a, is a, has a marginal profit for the business and no real increase in fixed costs. Um, and you just have marginal costs that go up with every sale, every, every customer buying, and every business is different. I get but that, that's a sign of scale because if you know you can acquire customers at 500 Rand and you're making two or 3,000 Rand a year off them, that's a business that's at scale. That's easy to fund. Okay, um, more questions? No? Okay, cool. I've got a, a question for Civic. 
Um, you mentioned the word uh, vision and passion earlier on. I mean, what's your why? I mean, it's, I think why is such an important thing to uncover from a motivations perspective. Like, what's your why when it comes to civic? Uh, that's definitely a question I always ask all my panelists. So what's your answer to that? Yeah, I think, uh, um, like, why do I do it? Um, I don't know, actually. I mean, I've, I thought about this. Why, why am I wired the way I'm wired? Um, I, I have no idea. I think it just, uh, I, I, have, I have, like, a, a bit of a FOMO thing, like fear of missing out on whatever I'm able to do, I guess. I don't know. I, I've always wondered. Like, uh, put it this way: it's, it's not something. It's not something which I can explain. Like when I was um, uh, when I was in school in primary school in South Africa, and I was you know, like a B seventy one. I was like running a sticker business. Where I'm still buying and selling stickers, and and I was young, and I was like what, nine years old. And it was throughout my high school career, I was always doing something business wise, something like entrepreneurial. So I never actually understood why I did it. I just did it because it seemed interesting and cool and fun. And then like I've got a eight-year-old kid who's exactly the same as me. And without me prompting him or explaining, he started his own little comic business at like age of eight. And so, and it's amazing. So it's like PowerPoint presentations on Google Docs and like, like outshining me, obviously. Is, is just, but like, it's just, uh, some people are just wired for this stuff and there's no explanation. I mean, maybe there is. I, I just, it's very deep. I don't know. Cool. Uh, before you, uh, we let you go, I want to move on to the party which is built for winter. So uh, blockchain cryptocurrency is largely unregulated, right? Um, let's hypothetically say that the regulators come, and who knows? Who knows? They make they, will. they will. They will, they exactly. Will so, I mean, how, just to set off this part two, is your business built for winter and how to pull that off? Like, how are you approaching that scenario like if the regulators come and go listen civic you can't do what you're doing anymore and they hit you with a big stick like are you built for that and how are you going to react and and make decisions around that so the first thing is that we are we are built for it in the sense that we, we're a portable company we can go anywhere in the world so if the regulators in the u.s shut came down on us we'd move to switzerland or somewhere else the reality is that the business that we built is very much about regulatory compliance. So we're making sure that AML laws, FICA, RICA, all that stuff is complied with digitally. So there's no reason for them to shut us down because we actually represent progress and improvements in the way things are done and we, we help them catch bad guys. So, so it's not something I worry about. In terms of the, the sort of crypto winter, I mean, we've been playing this for a while, so we're very long on cash. So we have a lot of cash in our books, more than, more than crypto. And we have enough runway to last through any sort of significant long-term downturn in crypto. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, also just, you know, we're not silly about our money. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, we're not, spe- we're not spendthrift. We're, we definitely uh, have a, a low burn compared to other crypto companies. We have a small team. We have a, a team in South Africa, about eight, nine people. So we, we keep our costs low. We have teams around the world, uh, South America, et cetera. So we have a bit of an outsourced labor approach uh, partially. There's pros and cons to that, but it keeps our cost low. So keep, keeping a low burn, by the way, for a startup, especially when you're making money, is is, is super critical. It's a, I can't I can't emphasize that enough. People who spend a ton of money doing um, doing this stuff, it, it's kind of crazy. Like so, you, you know, it's just it's nuts. So how much, I mean, what's a reason, Jason, I mean, it's probably best suited to you because you consult in the space. Like what's a reasonable amount of runway to have? I mean, uh, we're all subject to the veils of poor market economies, you know, thank God for Sora Mopoza at least doing something for entrepreneurs and SMEs. And I get want your views on that for you in a sec. Uh, but Jason, um, like cash flow is a big deal, right? How much runway is reasonable to last through a winter? I know how long is a piece of string here, but I mean, like what's your view on that? 
Uh, yeah, I hate to always pull the context card. It's so context-specific. But, you know, I'd say a general rule, you want to try and have six to 12 months runway. We scaled our company on one-month runway, literally month after month, bootstrapping at one-month runway. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're going to scale through, through ups and downs, by the time you become a mature company and you're no longer scaling regardless of the cycle, ideally six or 12 months. Um, but, I mean, what Vinny said couldn't be more important. I mean, step one, get the basics right. Operate lean. I mean, don't, don't get the Goldman Sachs offices. Don't splash out on the Bentley. Like, really keep your costs as low as they could be, even once it looks like we're killing it. Keep the costs as low as they can be. And then secondly, keep things as variable as they can be. Do so you want to avoid locking in fixed, uh, fixed costs and variableize everything, even at a premium? Um, because actually the greatest premium is on flexibility and agility. And, and so, I mean, obviously that's a dynamic balance you want to manage, but, you know, keep, keep overheads as low as they can be. And then of course, you know, manage six to 12 month runway if you can. But sometimes you can't keep your costs low. So if I want to scale, I need people, right? So I'm in the media business. I need editors. I need guys who understand how to produce content, tell stories, storyboard stuff, et cetera. It's very, it's a people intensive business. And, the, and so I need people, right? So, and of course you're ambitious and you don't really consider, you know, a lot of us don't because we're in the trenches every day. So if we don't think long term, it's almost like, oh shit, the price of Bitcoin's dropped. Maybe I should sell and then it's too late. <laughs> it's like you that guy, right? Yeah. So, um, so I want to go over to Voyeur. I mean, why don't we consider uh, the winter periods? You know what I'm trying to say. And what? It, and if when you look at consulting to 46,000 businesses who, who largely actually fund their entire businesses through your platform, um, and you basically broker deals to all the big banks. I mean, like cash flow, people intensive stuff. What's your insights or advice there around planning for winter and cash flow? Yeah. So a lot of SMEs don't understand how critical cash flow is. You know, they place revenue right at the top, then profits, then cash flow. Where literally, cash flow is the top thing you should be worried about. A lot of them, when you say don't plan for winter, I guess you get so stuck into your business. I think all of us do. You know, you're the tea lady, the driver, what else? <laughs> the secretary, PA, everything. And you get so consumed in selling the business. And... What you need to do, I think Jason and Vinny touched on it, is I say you have to change your mindset. That's one key thing because there's different stages in your businesses. You start off as the entrepreneur. Then the next stage, you're now the business leader. How do you outsource? How do you get more staff? It's a totally different mindset that you need to have. And critically, we forget to put in processes quite early on. And those are the fundamentals that we'll build for winter. You know, the foundation of the house. We're so busy putting on the roof, uh, the windows, the awnings, and we forget all about the foundation. If that's not solid in terms of your systems and processes, you're doomed. Even in good times, even if you scale, your business will implode. So, and then a lot of people go, yeah, but systems, processes take a lot of time, admin, etc. And I go, well, it's vital. For those winter months, you'll start to understand how important that foundational element of your business was, you know, um, how do you hire more people? How do you systemize a lot of the things that are in your business? And a lot of businesses can do that. You know, I met a, a biokinesist. By the way, I'm a podiatrist by profession who was, who then became an insurance broker and so forth and so forth. So I've gone through the full gamut of different industries and I met this guy and I said to him, okay, so how are you doing well? You're now on your third, fourth practice. 
And literally, he deconstructed his whole entire business. I mean, you talk about uh, time and service, the hairdresser. You know, you've only got so many time, so much time. Specifically, if you're not in a technology business, right? So you've only got 24 hours. If you're seeing, if you're a lawyer and you need to see eight people, you can only see eight people. How do you scale that? Interesting more, enough. More lawyers, obviously. Pardon? Yeah, <laughs> more, more lawyers. lawyers. And, so when the winter know, comes, you're so screwed, right? You're screwed. And, well, there's another business I'll talk about that called Caveat Legal and how they were able to scale their business. Literally from there, I'll talk about that business. Group Vin, of lawyers. Vinny's laughing here. <laughs> Vinny, I need that comment at, at the end. I'll let you go. A group of lawyers who then looked at the legal profession differently. And there are a lot of guys. Um, and how do you deconstruct your business to say, okay, I need more people, but I can't afford more people. So do I outsource them? Do I have, uh, there's certain parts in your business that you can outsource if you're really smart about it. You know, work with partners. I mean, I think Vinny t- talked about it. I mean, we also subscale. Um, how we've been able to get out there is literally through corporate partners. You know, they license our tool. We get into their markets. So I haven't needed a VC. Um, our other partners are these entrepreneurial groups. You know, one has 100,000 entrepreneurs. Another one has 83 entrepreneurs. So literally, I'm plugging into existing markets. Why do I have to market? You know, why do I have to build a whole marketing team? In fact, in most cases, I don't want. I call my staff headaches. <laughs> and most times, but building staff, you know, we all get, 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 um, uh, 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 hamstrung by this glamorous view. You know, I need to have 20, 30 people. I need to be employing a hundred people, have the fanciest offices. Those are just unnecessary head, uh, over, uh, overheads. You know, a lot of it also driven by ego and pride. So look at your business quite critically. Uh, you'll find there's a lot of things that you can outsource and actually increase the profitability of your business. Matt, I need to come in there. Uh, if you think about outsourcing your accounting, um, you yeah. can go to... <laughs> exactly. The beancounter.zeta.zeta. And if you still don't have enough cash, we also do funding, invoice financing, and against property. There you go. <laughs> Shameless Boom. Boom. Drops the mic. Drops the mic. Round of applause. Uh, Vinny, I've got to let you go. It's a cognizance of time there. Uh, any final remarks? Wisdom, pearls of wisdom. Yeah, and look, I, I, I mean, I, I, I actually agree with Wissy on, on what he was saying there. Uh, one of the things I, I will add is that this is, and this is probably the toughest lesson for every entrepreneur in the room. And I think uh, uh, to my fellow panelists, don't think this the wrong way, but stop wasting time talking to investors. <laughs> it's it's literally the biggest waste of time that entrepreneurs do. Like you should have a runway. You should say, you know. Uh, we have enough money to last us 12 months. This is our plan for execution. Don't try and grow faster than that. Try and get the product right. Try and get all these things to line up. And you know, along the way, you're going to have investors wanting to chat and come for coffee and meet and talk shit and waste your time. And they never it's never going to amount to anything. The percentage chance of closing a deal is really, really low. So like a lot of entrepreneurs just literally waste their time talking to investors constantly. Then they were involved in like term sheet discussions and wanting to invest and this. And it's a big distraction and you don't actually need the money at that point in time, but you're so worried that you're going to run out in 12 months or six months. Like I've run businesses to, um, down to the last like day, you know, <laughs> and you get capital in. So, so like, even when you have a month or two, uh, I, I'd say I, I start getting worried when I'm down to like three months. Okay. Then I start talking to investors. But if, if, if you can have, you can go raise like one or two million rand or half million rand and keep your costs low and run for 12 months, 18 months, 
Don't have these constant investment uh, ad hoc discussions. Now, what you should do is have a proper strategy to raise money. So you should say, okay, we can, this is our plan to execute the next 12 months. If anyone comes to us in between there, we just say, sorry, we, we can't check right now. We're busy focusing on, on the business, on the metrics. Uh, we're probably not a good fit for you guys anyway uh, because we don't have the minimum that you need to invest. And you can always ask them, like, what are they, what are they looking for? Whenever investors email me, the first thing I ask for is like, hey, what, what are you looking for? And then they come back and say, well, you know, $5 million of revenue per year or this or that. They'll come up with some, with some sort of criteria they need to make an investment for the committee. And then you go, sorry, we don't meet the criteria, but let's keep chatting that on. And you just push them away. The only time you maybe have a conversation is if, like, the stage they're investing in uh, is a perfect match for where you are. And therefore, and you think it might be an opportunistic time to chat. But otherwise, they just, you know, their job, by the way, they get paid to sit in the rooms and meet with you guys and discuss all your businesses and learn and then go invest in competitors, for example, like we're doing better. Like that's their job. Their job is to like survey the landscape. So don't talk to, don't waste your time talking to investors unless you are at the point where you're fundraising. And then when you are fundraising, don't talk to one investor. Go, you know, call up five or 10 that you've made or get introductions and go speak to all of them in one week and get it over and done with. And, and don't waste, like, but like literally this constant treble that I see entrepreneurs on every week, it's investor meetings, investor meetings for months on end. It's just a waste of time. You should be focusing on your business because I can tell you now, when you get the metrics right, when you get your, your, your KPAs right and your, um, your, your North Star, they call it, and you know exactly how your business functions, the investors will be coming to you and they'll be closing deals within weeks. I mean, I closed, I closed the round for Civic because it was the right stage and the right price. That's the other thing, valuation. Like entrepreneurs just get too, you know, they, they, they overvalue themselves all the time. It's just actually ridiculous. So raise as little as possible at the lowest possible price at the right time. That, that, that's the, the, what you should do. Like you shouldn't try and raise more at the wrong price at the wrong time. Think about it. You, 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 you combine those three things and all that's going to happen is the wrong results in the end of the day. Cool. And on that bombshell, I have to please welcome or say goodbye to Vinny. So please give him a round of applause. He's been great. Thanks, Vinny. Yes. Cool. Thanks, dude. Um, right. Well, let's stick to. Um, oh, you mentioned revenue streams uh, earlier, Boyo. Um, so you've got direct common revenue stream. <laughs> what? What? What happened? Oh, there you guys are. See, look, front and center. Hey. Eh? Um, so let's talk about revenue streams because I think when you're in a growth market, right, it's very easy to make money or easier to make money. Uh, but when you're in a downturn market, that puts pressure on, you know, the revenue streams, which, you know, ordinarily would have been established prior to the fact. I mean, what's your advice, you know, when you consult to 46,000 odd businesses and you see the stuff that they're doing and you've got a lot of data yeah. um, on, um, on your businesses, um, what do you see happening there? And what insights or lessons do you, or could you share with us? Well, two main things. Um, a lot of SMEs try to do too many things, way too many things, sell too many products or sell too many services instead of focusing on maybe a core two or three products and services and being the master at those two or three products or services. And dovetailing that is also figuring out, out of all your services and products, what makes you the most revenue? You know, there's no point selling 10 things and the two are the ones that are, you know, that 80-20 rule, the Pareto rule or law. Your <clears throat> 20 or two products out of your 10 are the ones that really make you the most money. Shouldn't you be focusing on those? All your revenue, all your resources backing that. So I find a lot of them make that mistake. And then the other side to it is also 
deconstructing your business, you know, thinking critically about what is it that you're selling. You know, um, for the longest time, I thought I was a technology business until I realized I'm a data business. And the minute I realized that, it changed my whole business model. Totally, I had to pivot. Purely because as a data company, I know the data that I have, I can then, you know, aggregate it. And a lot of third parties want that data and we can do and broker a lot of yeah, uh, amazing deals. And that became literally the revenue stream, you know, that we, we now focused on. As opposed to the beginning where we were licensing our product. It was on a license deal. So it was one or two real revenue streams. And um, there was a risk to that. You know, any of our two licensees, our large corporates, say, if they came back after the license or, or the renewal period of the contract ended and they said, listen, it's great, but, um, we're good. <laughs> we don't need, we don't need to license this product anymore. We're going elsewhere. I'm doomed. You know, 50% of my business is done. So I had to look at it differently, deconstruct my business. What am I actually doing? And a lot of people don't actually know what they're doing. You know, what business are you in? You know, have you asked yourself that question? So I find a lot of SMEs say, yeah, no, I'm selling stationery. And I go, really, are you? <laughs> are you really selling stationery? And, and, and they, sometimes they can't even answer what they do, you know? Yeah, because I think that it's very important to land you. I love this point because there's the business that you are now, but then there's the business that you're becoming. Yes. And because markets or cycles are changing so quickly, especially in, you know, an exponential world that we're moving into, um, it's important to always be innovating, right? And you know, you hear this stuff all the time and disruption is a very loaded word, but it's true. You know, it's all, it's like understanding what kind of business you're going to be, to become, irrespective of what hap is happening, you know, market wise. Um, I want to just, um, bring Manus into the, to the conversation here around de-risking your revenue streams in a downturn market. So, for instance, like, what could you do? I mean, do you look at partnerships? Do you look at raising capital? Um, and in how many years have you been running Bean Counter? It's like I don't know, 10 years plus, right? <laughs> so probably more. Uh, no, um, it's, it's been operating for nine years, but we've been, I've been involved for the last uh, two and a half years. Okay, cool. So when you look at your client base, I mean, how are they de-risking their revenue streams? I mean, we've just come out of a really, really crap market, right? Um, what did you see happening there uh, on the ground? Yeah. So first of all, myself, I believe in recurring revenue. Uh, that's like the best business model ever. I've been involved in many. And since I've got this model, I won't invest or look at any other business. And our businesses are also built around that. Um, you sign up the clients once, you can spend a lot, lot of money getting them. And then you just need to look after them like crazy. Um, and that's the model I like. And it's so risk averse because in up times, down times, if you can keep the client happy, you keep your revenue. But uh, as far as our clients go, and SMEs, they've de definitely been a lot under under pressure. Um, but you also always need to innovate. Um, and also, I think many of the traditional businesses are now looking at recurring models to, to sustain themselves. A lot of um, project work converted to retainer work in, in many different industries. And I think that's the way to go. Okay. Well, let's talk about retainers. How many of you in the, are in a services type business? Okay, a lot of you. How many of you sell project work of those who put your hands up? Project only work. Okay, how many of you are in retainers? Okay. Um, so let's talk about that. If you are selling project work, how do you then package uh, a new offer so that it's sellable as a retainer or a passive income stream? 
Obviously, it needs to be a win both ways. So we came into the accounting industry about three, four years ago, and we said we're going to get rid of this per hour billing, and we're going to package it together in a product. When you walk into a furniture store, the the, the sales guy don't tell you, yeah, I like this chair is like, I don't know, like maybe maybe 4,000, maybe 10,000, maybe 20,000. It's not the way we shop. Uh, but that's the way it was with accounting firms. And we came and we packaged it and the industry hated it and our professional bodies hated it. Um, but we just went for that. And in experience, what I can say is sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes you're going to win, but overall you're going to win because the moment you've got recurring prices and products, you, you, you can set out your cost and you can set out your profit profitability but the problem with projects is you hire staff you get a big project then you lose that project what do you do with the staff you've got big offices so um you can scale cost as you scale recurring revenue and that's the beautiful thing about it cool uh jason let's talk price points right so the first thing most people do is go holy shit my pipeline's drying up (laughs) okay uh what do i do well first thing people go maybe if i drop my price especially if you're in a competitive market space right where you're seeing potentially you've been charging a premium because of whatever the story was i mean um how do you approach pricing strategy in a downturn market so so how you approach it depends on how you approach starting the business and um you know, uh, the analogy I'll use here is um, the v- vitamin pill headache uh, pill, right? They, they use this a lot in Silicon Valley to help us dumb entrepreneurs get the concept of valuable product. The closer your product is to a vitamin, um, the more pain you're going to feel. The more pain you'll feel scaling, the more pain you'll feel in a downturn. And what is a vitamin? It's something that your customer doesn't notice if they don't take. Like you don't take it today, you don't notice. You don't take it for a week, you don't notice. Maybe after six months, you notice. Um, a headache pill, you don't notice. You, you notice if you don't take it for one minute. So the closer you are to a headache pill, the closer you are to a product where your your customers um, don't have the same power to just lever your pricing down uh, when times are tough because they feel pain when they're not taking your product. Um, so, so there's got to be a second component that you add, which is nobody else can take that headache away. It's really hard for other people to take that headache away the way that you take the headache, as quick, as fast, as convenient, as whatever, but it's got to be hard for other people to take it away, and that's the moat that Warren Buffett talks about. And when you approached your business that way before you scale, you had a, a headache pull product and you had a moat around it. Um, then when kind of winter comes, you're well prepared already with the most important preparation, which is a lot of people out there still need your product, even though times are tough and they feel pain if they don't buy it. So they're going to cut, but they're going to cut other things first because they don't want a headache. Um, so, so I'd say that's the starting point. And then when you do that, what you do is you shift away from pricing how, how much is a, a headache pull worth. And what you start pricing is how much is it worth to take away a headache? So you shift away from product-based pricing to value-based pricing. Okay, well, let's talk about discounting because I saw something, a really nice quote, or just I really love it. It's basically, if you know your true worth, you'll stop giving discounts. You know, And if, you, if you're a startup, it's kind of like you say yes to everything and you're just fighting just to survive. Do you know what I mean? Um, how many of you are startups, by the way? Hands up. Please, a lot of you, hey? So how many of you can relate? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, um, so let's talk around discounts. I mean, do you believe in them fundamentally? If you're a scale business, if you've designed the end in, in mind, you're hiring the best people, and I want to talk about resourcing again in a second, and you've done everything right, right? But the market changes, right? You start to lose your, your pipeline or whatever the story might be. Um, like, how do discounts work? Yes or no? Oh, yeah, yeah. They do, 
But it boils down to the why. So why are you discounting? Is it forever? Um, what value? I think Jason touched on that. So the thing that you need to stay away from is commoditized business, right? What's an example of that? So <clears throat> there are many examples, bread, eggs, et cetera. I mean, in fact, interesting story. I meet a guy over the weekend. He's like, oh, I've got a chicken farm. I get a lot of entrepreneurs for always uh, trying to get advice from me as if I'm the oracle. But I'll give it. <laughs> I'll give my two cents worth. And the guy says, look, I'm, I want to build this business, uh, eggs. You know, everybody eats eggs. And I go, yeah, they do. That's fair enough. And I said, but what's different? And he says, what do you mean? And I said, I went into Woolies in the morning, quail eggs, same little box. Okay. That little cotton, it's actually a plastic cotton, 75 bucks. Right. So why don't you grow quail eggs? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have to use more, you know, uh, a lot of room or space on the farm. Da, da, da. And I said, exactly. So there are certain businesses where we all go into the similar business. I mean, even if it's cleaning, you can clean a different way. It's about that value. And if you discount, it's fine to discount to get into the market. So sometimes you start up. Yeah. Nobody knows you. You know, um, you need to prove that you're worth or proof of concept or proof of business. So discounting for that reason over a short term, then there's value in doing that. But it's the why. Why are you actually discounting? For what purpose? What is the end goal? What is the outcome? But to have a pure discount strategy, it's a downward spiral. You know, um, we talk about services. I read about an interesting business now where you can even productize. So I bought a shaving kit. Subscription model for shaving. I mean, who would have thought? Dollar Shave Club. Yeah, Dollar Shave Club. Well, I, I use the black one. It's called Walker and Co. <laughs> 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 but same thing, you know. The guy's thirty-four year old. It's better. It's, better. it's, it's different. Yeah, it works right. for me. Um, the guy's a thirty-four year old, and Procter and Gamble offered him five hundred million US dollars, and he said no. Right. So this whole idea of subscription just being useful for services. Not anymore. You can have a subscription business in a product-based environment, right? As long as you're providing value. So a lot of people, I say, think critically about your business. What value? I keep going back, and I'm going to hammer it. Value and be paranoid. I'm super paranoid every day. I wake up, cold sweats, sleep, cold sweats. And I'm thinking, shucks, who's going, to, who's going to take this business away from me? You know? That's, you have to be paranoid in this environment, consistently, from the beginning when, when you start to even when you're mildly successful, mildly, <laughs> and I put that in inverted commas, if you're not paranoid, you're going to be in trouble. There's nothing worse than actual success because your pride and ego gets in the way and you, you know, start having that strut. And uh, if you're black, you have a rise, you're having a better walk. You know, that, yeah, 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 that swagger one, you know. Success can breed contempt, can also breed a false sense of value in terms of what you do, what you're providing out in the market. So always be paranoid. But yeah, to answer the question, discount, do it. I did it. I did it. Um, it got to a point, I mean, the second negotiation I had with one of the banks, they were trying to squeeze us right down. I looked at them and I said, no, it's not going to happen. My CTO looked at me, kicked me under the table, and I said, no, but 
the fact that they bought in the first time and they saw the value and they want to now renew, why are we going down? So I suppose this is a great point to talk about partnerships, yeah. right? So, uh, Manus, when you were building the bean counter and then, of course, your, excess, your exit rather to transaction capital, like how important were partnerships in that business? Um, and more broadly, how should one approach uh, partnerships when it comes to scale? Because you can scale really, really quickly. I mean, if you've got 46,000 SMEs, which that's kind of a nice carrot to dangle in front of a bank. Do you know what I mean? So, and partnerships, we've just done a partnership with the Mesh Clubs. We're doing all the media and content for them, hence why you guys are all here tonight. Um, but going back to you, Manus, partnerships, what's your play? What's your story there? Yeah, so equity partnerships, I always see entrepreneurs, they're so keen to do an equity investment to, to tell your friends you've done a big deal. But those investments rarely work out. Most of them will sell back in a couple of years. Uh, so I always say when you don't know the guys or you don't need the, the capital investment, don't do it. Uh, if there's a great partnership, go, go into a joint venture. You've got something, I've got something, let's do something together. We, we share profits, uh, we share revenue. Um, and if it works two years down the line, then we go into business together. But entrepreneurs jump into equity partnerships all the time and it very seldom works. So I'm very against that. Uh, when we did the deal with TC, um, we said uh, one plus one must give ten. Um, because if one in one is two, we can do it with anyone. And that's what we felt we could get right. And a year later, it definitely was the right decision. Jason, what's your view on partnerships? Yeah, I mean, so I'm a big believer in partnerships, the right ones. Uh, you know, you can burn a lot of time trying to structure partnerships. So, I, you know, my view on partnerships is is less serendipitous and more strategic. It is know the business model you're trying to scale, know the things that you, you could best get through the right partners, and then basically headhunt. Uh, obviously, start with your networks, but the point is be targeted uh, as opposed to primarily exploratory. You'll do a lot of exploring. You'll have a lot of coffee. Some things will happen serendipitously, um, you know, but I'm a believer of intentional business building. Um, and, and so, you know, when you can get the one plus one equals 10, you know, most often that doesn't happen by accident because of a coffee you happen to have. It does happen that way sometimes, but that's not a strategy to scale a business on. Uh, know what you're trying to build and then go find the people who can add what you can't possibly add to the degree they can. Matt, can I say something? Uh, I think the other problem is when you want to partner with someone, everyone is so eager to talk business. Everyone talks, but no one walks the talk. And especially with these big corporates, they aspiring entrepreneurs or established entrepreneurs, they get into this space and they tell the entrepreneur all these big dreams. I'm a bank. I've got so many clients. If you're on board with us, we're going to do these amazing things. And very seldom they do, don't do anything. Um, and especially if they take equity, it's such a big risk. So again, I would say just work with them and very soon you're going to find out very few actually do what they said they're going to do. 100% agree. So just as a tip, like... Try and structure in a point of commitment like on day day two. So there's some, some step they have to take that's going to cause them some pain, and it's a test of how committed they are to the process. Okay, cool. I want to move on to the final uh, part of the show, which is all around the scale blueprint. And so systems can obviously enable scale really amazingly well, right? Um, there's accounting software like Zero, and feel free to punt it. <laughs> no, you will. <laughs> it's like it's a foregone conclusion. <laughs> so at the moment, you can get a three-month free trial. <laughs> it's a discount right there. So, um, so let's talk about systems, right? I mean, if you can automate those processes that are time consuming or you just quite simply don't want to 
fucking do them, <laughs> right? Like managing people, right? You're right? Invoicing, all that kind of cool stuff. And we'll touch on outsourcing in a second. I mean, what are the fundamental systems that any business has to have uh, when it comes to enabling scale through technology? So I want to give my two best advice, not on technology, uh, but um, it can also be like physical stuff systems. So we had this issue at the office where uh, when new staff came in, we had to make them keys. And eventually it was like this full-time job just to manage keys. And when the staff comes or employee comes in, make keys, when they leave, take keys, oh shit, we didn't take the keys, get keys. Um, <laughs> and then eventually we started biometric readers, which is obvious. But even for the little stuff, like the petty cash safe, petty cash box, we included the little safe in the office with a pin. So even those physical stuff um, where you can take the uh, time away, put in those things. And then the second thing, and I always talk about it, is with employees. Um, one of the biggest things that created a lot of success for us was when we started doing second agreements with all our employees. And what I mean with that is you've got your standard employment agreement, but then we created second um, agreements where we've listed every single thing that they had to do, uh, from the cleaner to the CEO. And if they didn't do it, we would revisit those agreements and see if it's on there. And if it's not on, we'll add it. Um, and to get that share understanding between you and your employees. So those are the systems that I would say that you need to implement to get scale because otherwise you as an entrepreneur or CEO will forever manage those employees, think employees are stupid, but it's actually you that's not just putting in the systems to manage them. So everybody has to have a, a key strategy, basically. Are <laughs> <laughs> you going on that bombshell? No. <laughs> um, so what, uh, Jason, I mean, you consult in this space. I mean, if you're yeah. looking at it at a 10XE perspective. Um, like so two things first, right? So your first technology to scale on is awesome people. Like it's your avant-garde for everything. The systems you put in will be put in by people. Um, so get the right people first. And without question, there are systems to systematize how you get the best people into the business and, and keep them. So that should be focus number one. And focus number two is systematizing your revenue engine. Like if you can get right, getting great people and you've got predictable revenue growth, a lot of the other things take care of themselves. A lot of the other systems come because smart people have good ideas like, you know, let's change the stupid key system. Um, and, and when you've got growth, you've got the, the reason to fund putting in place those systems. I'd say without question, those two set, you know, sets of systems are the first things you put in place. Um, Boyer? Yeah. Um, I say to entrepreneurs, there are so many free tools out there. Um, it's actually staggering how many free things are out there to assist your business. And even worse, so how many people don't use them? You know, Google Docs is fantastic. It's fantastic. Um, we've got a great beaming accounting system. Fantastic. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you've got my SME tools.com free log on does your financials. This is my plug. Your business plan does a whole great, a whole number of things, you know, and it's there, but. Why aren't you using them? You know, we spend so much time selling, 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 but we don't use these systems to help us systemize and automate our business, which is for me mind boggling. You know, uh, I get the idea that you have to sell, but quick little anecdote as uh, uh, I go off on a tangent. So a month ago, um, my business partner and I get key man insurance. Oh, lovely. Discovery comes, does the tests. 
um, were insured for, you know, quite a bit. And he's like, wow, yeah, we, we, we expensive. Wow, look, if you ever die, I can claim on you. And I'm going, yeah, I'm worth so much. That evening, because of my paranoia, I freaked out. You know why? I realized I hadn't built a team. Right? So if I'm worth that much to the business, it means I can't take myself out to, outside of the business. So I'm still working for the business. And the whole premise of why I started a business, aside from many other things, is the business must work for me, right? We all here, um, I'm presuming most of us have started PTYs or you've got CCs and not NPOs. Uh, even NPOs, you need to make money. But ultimately, you want a business of value, a business that's, you know, going to work for you, not the other way around. And without systems, and again, I go back, there are lots of them and they're free. Spend a day, two days figuring out how do you automate and systemize your business. It's free. It's worth it. It's going to help you scale that business, help you go away on holiday more often, <laughs> you know, see your wife and your kids more often and not be hated. But they're there, you know, and, and, and it boggles the mind. Spend time systemizing your business so that it can work for you. Well, let's talk about that, right? So when do you outsource anything, right? Because you get some people, and I've kind of fallen in that category where uh, it's like you have – it's excellence or nothing. Do you know what I mean? And it's attention to detail. Otherwise, how do you build a brand, right? How do you build a really successful business? This, these things are important. So what you find is that you kind of like – you get to the situation where actually, you know, I need people. I need to start outsourcing stuff. I have written – like I did another life like – part of globalization, which is like, you know, 15 years ago, you know, when the internet happened and had sex and stuff and outsourcing <laughs> happened. Um, and you basically systemize your processes, right? So it's a local work instruction or a document that goes step one, two, three till 12. And it literally spells out in writing all the steps that a potential new hire can do, right? And I suppose everybody needs to do this in their business um, to scale. Like you have to scale your processes. The problem though <laughs> is that sometimes instructions don't get followed as much as you write them in detail. And so what you find is that you start getting frustrated with the fact that you have outsourced certain things. For instance, especially as a startup, like I have a PR firm, right? And when they don't get things right in the press release, for instance, or in the content distribution deals that we, that we broker through all this stuff, like that pisses me off, right? So, and that's a kind of a barrier to scale, I guess. Um, so I just open up to the panel to anybody who can jump in here. Like, when do you outsource? And going back to your point around systems, like they're like Hootsuite, you can outsource the social media content distribution. Do you know what I mean? This MailChimp, your, your email, like everything is automated, right? So where, where do you jump off the, the outsourcing train? I think the buck still st stops with whoever is outsourcing or the entrepreneur. And I think too often we say that, um, I can't get to this. Let me just outsource it. Um, many outsource functions really is a collaboration between the two. And if they really let you down, if they make spelling errors in your press releases, then you must fire them. But I think the nice thing about uh, outsourcing is you can keep someone else accountable, but you need to get that common understanding and um, in terms of what they expect from you and what they're going to deliver. And if they don't deliver, then, then get someone else. But I think being in that space, it's mostly just getting the communication and the collaboration right. Yeah, I mean, so, so I'd say I'd reverse the question. When should you not outsource? That's the better question to be asking because you should try and, as a scale-up, outsource as much as you can. But there are a lot of good times when you shouldn't outsource. And I'd say the most fundamental time you don't outsource 
is when you're trying to lead the thinking, when you're innovating, when you're trying to figure out how this should be done in the future, you want that done inside. You want that learning and knowledge to stay on the inside. Um, and when it's harder to guarantee quality if it is done outside than if it is done inside, then, you know, and it's a really critical activity, then, then don't outsource. But, but on almost everything else, ask why not? And then how do we gar- how do we manage quality so, so we can guarantee it through, just as Marna says, uh, through skill in how we manage contractors. Um, but almost everything else, so far as possible, outsource it because you're externalizing a lot of your cost, your fixed cost, and you're externalizing, um, a lot, a lot of the, expertise that sometimes is hard to get to come and buy into your value proposition and employer, but not so hard to get if they can continue living their dream and deliver services to you. Buya, do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, For me, outsource everything that's not in core. What is core to your business is the value of your products and services that you're delivering to that one customer who's going to pay you that 10 rand. Simple as that. If you're not, if, if whatever it takes to deliver that service or product to that first paying customer is core, that you don't outsource. Everything else, outsource. There's no reason not to. In fact, um, I would say there's an interesting, um, Greiner, G-R-E-I-N-E-R, G-R-E-I-N-E-R growth model. If you remember that, he talks about the six phases of your growth. So at the beginning, you're the entrepreneur, you're small, you start up, you're creative, fantastic. Then you go to the next stage where you have to become a business leader. Now you're delegating. You're trying to find that's, I guess that's what you're talking about. That, that core staff, who are the key people? And that's critical. I think you spoke about it before you even get to processes and so forth and so forth. Do me a favor and look at that. You can Google it. G-R-E-I-N-E-R, growth model. So you outsource as much as you can, but also in terms of partnership, I mean, we've got an unwritten um, rule in our business, partnership or per- uh, uh, partnerships or perish. Purely, we hunt, we hunt in packs. So we've got something like 42 partners at the, at the moment, um, all for different things. To add value to what we're doing, we add value to them. So like in any partnership, a partnership is a relationship, right? Whether it's with your sibling, business partner, wife, <laughs> brother. It's a relationship, right? So you're not going to pick any Tom, Dick and Harry and Susie and Martha and so forth. You're going to be very critical about those people, right? You're wanting to build long-term partnerships and partnerships about value. It's never one-sided. So what do I add value to you? What do you add value to me? If that's not happening and it's not reciprocal, it's not going to be long-term. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. So if you can partner, half of the job is done. I mean, uh, I think we touched on it earlier. I mean, I don't market because we've got partners with 100,000 entrepreneurs. Another one has got 19,000. Another one, I just plug into those as my distribution. I don't have to do anything. I didn't have to buy. I didn't have to, I didn't have to uh, uh, pay them. They don't have equity in my business, but I'm adding value to them in terms of their membership base. And they're adding value to me in terms of getting that membership base onto my platform. Cool. Manas, you wanted to jump in there? Um, I just want, I don't know what the question was, but I just want to add on something there. Um, so just in terms of outsourcing, and again, I'm involved in it, like, th- there's no ways that you can employ in, in, in our space, uh, accountant in house for 6,000 rand. So you can utilize the knowledge and skills of someone on the outside for a 
for a very low fee and get all the, the benefit of that. We do debt collecting. We do it all the time. We know what works, what doesn't work. Um, so to pay us for that, you're never going to get it right yourself. So I think we, we underestimate the power of, 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 of outsourcing because we've got such egos as entrepreneurs. We can do everything and we can do it better than anyone else. But the reality isn't that. And if we can just get to your point, the working relationship right, the value that we can get from the other party is huge. Jason, you also wanted to jump in. Well, firstly, I just want to thank Madness for the little masterclass on how to pitch your business five times in half an hour. Um, but so, 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 so everyone's saying you shouldn't go for an equity partner and you're sitting here. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then Jason is like, no, it's really good to go for, for a partner in your business. <laughs> no, so I actually tell entrepreneurs, actually, don't go for an equity partner, but, but when you have to come to us. Um, so what I was going to say is, I mean, manufacturing iPhones is probably quite core, and Apple outsourced that. Um, so, so what you have to think about, and that's, by the way, why they're the world's highest profitability company per employee, half a million dollars of profit per employee uh, per year, and it's because they're really good at knowing um, not only what do they have to do inside, which is design, um, architecture, innovation, but then also innovating on how do you manage it when somebody else manufactures your product for you um, and then becoming brilliant at that. So, so their core competence has become managing the people who make the iPhone. Um, and so, you know, I'm just challenging you to think really creatively about what to outsource and what you really need to do inside um, to deliver the value and to capture the value. Okay, cool. Are there any questions for our panel? This, this lady in the front, Mav? Hi, everyone. Um, I just want to go back to that point around discounting, um, especially to get into the market. We did a lot of that. Um, I run a creative agency, so it's service-based retainer model. Um, and one of the things that we're battling with, I hope none of my clients are sitting here, um, is how do you leave a price point that you established with certain clients without breaking the relationship and, like, you know, seeming like you guys are now full of yourself, you're too big for the people you started with, but really getting to a, a better price point that allows you to scale because what we started charging when we entered the market was quite competitive, but surely now we have to move on, but we still have those clients. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Cool. Uh, who's that for? Minus. Uh, anyone. Who's the bean counter? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you my opinion on it. And someone actually asked me the same thing, exactly the same thing this week. And my answer was, I think um, many times we, we, we think we're the supplier and we must stay here and we can't talk to our customer. So what we do many times is we go to our customer when they don't want to pay our fees and we say, what do you want to pay? And then they tell us and we go back and we see if we can't make it work. And then we go back, not discounting our fees, but say, for this, we can't offer you this and this, but we can still offer you this. And I think we don't talk to our customers enough. And with that, I said to the other girl that just be completely honest and approach your customer and say, you know what, when we started out, we really wanted your business. We discounted it. At the moment, we're running at a loss for it, and we need to increase our prices. You can go and find competitive quotes, but we just won't be able to sustain you on this. And just be completely honest with them. And many times, if they're a good customer, you'll find that they actually work with you to, to work it out. So I've got a line a friend of mine always says to his clients, uh, and I've been in that meeting. It's quite funny. 
um, he, he will say to, he said it to one client who was, you know, arguing with him about price point. He said, listen, um, I never said I was the cheapest, but I'm the best. So you also get to get to, you have to get to a point where you believe in your product and understand that you've grown past a particular growth curve, right? So the clients that you had, you might have to say, for this price point, does it work for this business that I am or that stage that I'm at now? It might not. You might have to, as an entrepreneur, get to a point where you go, the four clients that I had, after having that honest conversation, we are not seeing eye to eye. Say no and move on. Find better clients, new clients, clients that will see the value of the service that you're bringing because you're at a different stage of your business. Never be afraid to say no and cut ties. It, It happens. It's kind of hard to do that, dude, when you're in survival mode, eh? Yeah. So that's the tricky bit. Um, I've been in that space. <laughs> and well, We all have. Yeah, right? we all have. And it goes back to that point that you have to make that pivot, that transition of where you are. What do you believe in? Do you believe in the service that you or, or product that you're offering? H- have you proven the value of your service and offering? And I can guarantee you somebody's going to buy it. If you believe in it and you're offering value, I go back to value. Everybody and their dog can sell the cheapest product and the cheapest service. They're always going to be there. There's a new crop of people who come and do uh, advertising design work. Dime a dozen outside of Vega and what are these other schools, yellow and red and so forth and so forth. There'll be many of them also offering cheaper products to get in and they're the best and they've learned the newest design, what not, not, not. But if you want to endure, you have to believe in your product deconstruct and say, what is it that I'm actually offering? So maybe website design, it was part of your package, doesn't matter anymore because the amount of websites that you're doing for the amount of return doesn't make sense. So now you've moved to more strategic consulting in your design or advertising that, you know, you pay, people will pay more for. You have to decide. Cool. Any more questions? Okay. I have one. Okay. That guy at the right the end there. So while we're waiting for past the mic, <laughs> um, I, just to run around hiring. So hiring, just resourcing is one thing I really want us to touch on because it's a critical component. Everyone's learned at that point. So um, should you hire for skills or should you hire for attitude? <laughs> wow. So taking a leaf out of Mundus's book, you need to come to our boot camp on the 25th of this month. <laughs> but... Um, you, you definitely, it's role specific. The, the more junior the role is, the more you're hiring for attitude. In every role you're hiring for attitude, that's without question. But the more senior the role is, the more clear it is that you just need competence and experience. You know, you can't hire, um, you know, a sales executive to scale your product across three continents and, you know, five time zones who hasn't done this before. So you need a great attitude, but you also need somebody who can show you the way because we don't know how to do it. We're hiring somebody who can show us the way. So you've got to get it right per role. In every role, you need attitude. In some roles, you really do need the right competence. Uh, I would also add to that uh, culture fit um, in terms of people coming into your organization is very important. So you can have a total MBA grad who's fantastic on paper, but in terms of the culture fit and what that person adds to the vision and the value of your business, does nothing. So it's a tricky one. Um, I don't have, actually have the answer to that. <laughs> yes. You don't have the answer to that. <laughs> Let's take your question there, sir. Yeah, good evening, everyone. Um, we've built a fast-growing platform 
And um, uh, currently, we're not really looking for VZ. So maybe a bit of a practical question. We're looking for a business mentor. Where do you find those? Yep, great question. I think it's so important because I think so many entrepreneurs are looking for an investor. Um, and when they get the cash, they're so disappointed in what they get because they think they're going to get all, all everything else. But most investors don't invest for that, for that reason, especially on Shark Tank. I think many of the entrepreneurs pitching on there, they were, they was actually looking for someone to never mind help them run their business to run their business. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and an investor won't do that. So it's easy when you're in a high growth uh, business to find money because there's a lot of money lying around and people want to use it. But it's very hard to find the time. Um, and I think those are the real valuable VCs who's actually saying we don't do a lot, but those who we do do, we we spend time and and money on them. And there are two gentlemen over here that you can come to afterwards. And they committed to, to spending time in a business as well. So you do get it. Um, I just think they're far, far and few. So, so just on that, the, the other thing that you can consider doing is joining a mastermind group. How many of you have heard of that before? Okay. How many of you are actually in one? Okay. So that's, that for me is, is a sin, right? So if you're running a business, you need to be in a mastermind group and it just happens, happens. Matt, isn't there one yet? Yeah, there is actually. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm serious because I started one 18 months ago. The thing with running a business, whether you're a service business, product business, tech business, doesn't matter. Like if you, it's lonely, right? It's just fucking lonely, right? Your wife doesn't understand it unless she's working in the business with you. It's, it's just, it's hard, right? So the only people that will ever understand your world is another entrepreneur, period. Okay. And maybe your therapist. <laughs> Get a therapist. <laughs> but um, but masterminds are like business therapy for for entrepreneurs, right? It's a safe space. It's like six people. You basically come in. It's all confidential, and you talk about your stuff, your shit, right? It's like hiring decisions. Where do I find a mentor? Um, should I hire? When do I outsource? Everything that we've discussed here is the kind of a forum, right? That you conduct in a mastermind thing. You talk about your business per, uh, positives and negatives, your, your your personal positives and negatives, what you need help with. And we track everything here through our member network and then we actually go out and resolve unresolved issues. So if you have a, a, a music, if you're a music publisher and you have a legal issue with a publishing deal in Europe and you can't find su sufficient knowledge, capital, or expertise to solve that problem, we will solve that. And I can tell you, you'll, you'll become friends. They'll start to come to your birthday parties. You'll start to like do deals with each other. Your networks will start to open up. And all you did was join a mastermind group to talk about your shit. It's the, it's the opportunity cost of that for me is insane. So I highly recommend that you all do that. And if you, if you really want to know what it's about, do a trial and come and experience it for yourself. Um, Boya, you wanted to jump Yeah, so I, I want to back. Um, Matt on that, you know, we under appreciate and undervalue peer to peer mentorship, right? And the expertise, the failures, I failed at business, uh, greatest learning curve ever. Yeah, brokest time of my, my life, but it's been good. It was good. But peer to peer mentorship in terms of what you can learn from your peers, you know, people who've been there, done that, failed, even people in, um, not just mentors, but people who are professionals, you know, so, you have to also understand why you want the mentor. You know, I've got some, I've got about three mentors, gray hairs, I call them. And for me, I've never asked them for money. They're millionaires, never asked them for money. Reason being, 
their input as a sounding board and their input in terms of social capital. So that's another thing when you come and join these masterminds. Social capital is the amount of network that you have, right? So I've met Jason, Manus, Matt there. You know, they could probably advise me on who to hire. They might know the right people to fit my business. So again, it's, it comes back to, you know, you can have a mentor and there's hundreds of programs in South Africa and abroad. They talk about mentors and my argument is, does it fit me in terms of what I do? Does this person, can I have a coffee with them? Do I also like them? Do they understand my sector? Um, is it access to their social network that can open up doors? So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely um, agree with Matt. Those peer-to-peer mentorship, these kind of sessions, and also just to cry. It's important. <laughs> As entrepreneurs, it's important. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> no one will say a word. Uh, any other questions? Anyone, anyone, anyone? Okay, cool. So I just want to wrap up and say thank you to our panel. Um, and we're going to play a quick little game. So <laughs> this is the, so, okay, basically, you want to explain the game? Yeah, yeah. So um, we're giving away a seat at the next part of Scale Bootcamp. It's three days on how to scale a company at 16 and a half grand ticket price. And the, the ticket goes to whoever puts up their hand first with the answer. <laughs> To the question, what was the biggest exit in South Africa last year? Venture name, entrepreneur name? Entrepreneur's name? Okay, you get half a ticket. I'm just joking. You got it. Okay, so it was Get Smarter, $123 million uh, to you, uh, Sam Paddock. Um, so, well done, guys. All right. Cool. So it's Anish. Yeah, well done. Um, so Anish, you've also the guy who's won the phone. So congrats, dude. Yeah, and you've been before. So who are you going to give it to? Yeah, actually, who's the, the lady <laughs> in the front? <laughs> Alrighty, cool. So um, I just want to wrap up very quickly and say, guys, if you haven't done so yet, come and join the Mesh Club, meshclub.co/trial, and come and experience a mastermind. Right, just do it. You've got nothing to lose. Um, you'll also be it's not a standard chance to win at your profile on Entrepreneur Mag. Um, and so remembering, we've got our final event, which I'm actually weirdly enough very excited about because it's all about the person. Um, so in other words, if you're running a small business, the person that you are then is completely different to the person that you need to be to run a really scale business. And we're going to talk around the business of belief and a whole bunch of stuff. So just take a quick look at this. Cool. So there are only about 30 tickets left. So we're already at capacity. So we're expecting another sold out show. So if you haven't done so, please join us. Um, and uh, you can do that on Quicket. So finally, please give a warm round of applause to our panelists. Thanks, guys. And finally, thank you guys. Really appreciate all your time, and I hope to see you on another show soon. Cheers. Listen to the Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown Show. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my 
clients. Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.